All right. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 2. Chapter 2, we're going to start, excuse me, we're going to start in verse 16 of Colossians, chapter 2. If you haven't been here, um, first of all, welcome, glad you're here. Uh, if you haven't been here, um, just a little bit of background information for you, because this is going to be really important for what we're talking about tonight. The Colossian church is dealing with an influx of false teaching brought in by false teachers. And we're going to see tonight that there are two main kind of thrusts of this false teaching. There's the the well-known New Testament false teaching of the Judaizers, which are people that come in and tell Gentiles, you have to be a Jew before you can be a Christian. You have to go through all of the Jewish uh, rites of circumcision and things like that. You have to observe all the festivals and all the feasts. You have to be a Jew in order to be saved by the Jewish Messiah. That's kind of what the Judaizers teach. Uh, Paul refutes that very thoroughly in the book of Galatians, among other places. But the book of Galatians, I think, is the most full-throated defense of the gospel against the Judaizers uh, because it ultimately is a works-based salvation that they're preaching. Uh, the other kind of false teaching that is kind of unique in the book of Colossians is this kind of mystical kind of thing. Um, and, and, it, and it's based in something called Gnosticism, which has to do with special knowledge. So these people come in and they say, okay, you know Jesus, but we have even more knowledge about Jesus. We have deeper knowledge about the things of God. And so we're here to give you the special knowledge. And so they, in their special knowledge that they brought in, were talking about things like angel worship and self-deprivation and things like that. And we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. But I wanted to make sure that you understood that Paul has been consistently throughout the first two chapters has been addressing things from that perspective specifically. He is addressing false teaching here at the church in Colossae based on those two things. And this section where we're going to look kind of brings those things to a head. And the main thrust of the message tonight, um, the title of, of, of my message tonight is, is Hold Fast to the Head. Hold Fast to the Head. And the main thrust of all of this that Paul wants them to understand is that these false teachings that you are kind of ascribing to or taking into the church, they are of no value to you. Ultimately, the only thing that is of value to you is Jesus Christ himself. Okay, so that's kind of the background to kind of set up where we are. So let's look together at Colossians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 16. Uh, you don't have to stand up. I know Pastor Mitch has everybody stand up. Uh, you can sit. It's up on the screen if you don't have your Bible, if you don't want to pull it up for whatever reason. But this is what it says. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism or in worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. 
If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. All right. So our passage tonight, Paul is seeking to kind of give some encouragement to the Colossians in this section. The contrast here between how Paul deals with the Colossians and how he deals with, say, the Galatians is pretty strong. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that Paul was the one who founded the church in Galatia. He was the one who walked with them from the elementary doctrines of the faith and tried to kind of bring them up. And after Paul left, false teaching came in and he had to address it afterward. Paul has never been to Colossae. He did not establish this church. And so he is coming in as an outsider. So he kind of treats them pretty gently. And all along, because he, has, he expressed early in the book how thankful he was for their faith, thankful he was for their good works, he, he wants to kind of encourage them. And so he's doing this in an encouraging way. And he's going to reference the two issues that the false teachers were bringing up in the church, the two things that I just talked about. So the first thing that they were doing is that they were pushing the Colossian Christians to observe Jewish law in order to be a true Christian. You see that in the references that he says, uh, where he talks about questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Okay? So, like I said before, this is a common false teaching in the early church that you must be a Jew in order to be saved by the Jewish Messiah. You have to be a Jew who observes all the Jewish law, and then you can become a Christian. Paul tells the Colossians not to be concerned about these false teachers passing judgment on them over these issues. Now, this is, this, is an, this is something that's really significant because you're talking about people who come in and the way that they carry themselves, they appear to be very spiritual. They, they are very knowledgeable about things. And so they're coming in and they're saying, you're doing it wrong. And not only are you doing it wrong, but in doing it this way, you are, you are not really pursuing Christ. And so Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you in these questions. And he expands his thoughts on that in the book of Romans chapter 14. You can flip there if you'd like, but I'm going to read it. We'll be in Romans chapter 14. This is what it says. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. I'm going to pause there and explain. So one of the big issues was that under Jewish law, they could not eat any meat that had been sacrificed to idols. You couldn't do that. And so what happened was, if, if Jews went to other places where, there are, where there's pagan worship and things like that, they just didn't eat any of the meat. Because you don't know. You don't know what has happened with this. And so some of these Jews who have become Christians are carrying that on. And so that's why he says they eat only vegetables, because there's no way to know. Because sometimes these animals, would, they would be sacrificed, and then they'd bring them back to the market and sell the meat. So even if you, you know, say, go to Walmart and buy some meat, you don't know if this was an animal that was sacrificed to an idol. And so the way that they got around that was they just didn't eat meat at all. Okay? So I just wanted to make sure you understood that. And so one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. 
Who are you to pass judgment on, on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. So this is a reference to the Sabbath. The Jews on the Sabbath had very strict regulations about what they could and could not do. And so some of these Jews who had become Christians still wanted to observe the Sabbath. And other Christians, some who were Jewish and some who were not, did not observe the Sabbath. And these were points of contention in the early church where they would fight about all this stuff. They were quarreling back and forth with each other. And so Paul is essentially saying, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. If your conscience tells you to do this, do that. If their conscience tells them to do the other, let them do it. Stop fighting with each other and stop judging each other over it. So this is Paul going into a more, more detail here. And he says, going down to verse 10, um, he says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So Paul is essentially saying here, listen. If it's not clearly laid out in scripture, don't worry about it. You do what your conscience tells you. They do what their conscience tells them and know that we will give an account to God over it. Paul explicitly is telling the Roman believers, which is another church he's never been to, that they shouldn't be passing judgment on each other because we all ultimately belong to God and we'll have to give an account of ourselves to him. And this reinforces the thought from James chapter 4, verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So in other words, the Holy Spirit gives you convictions about things that sometimes aren't clearly spelled out in Scripture. You should follow those, but don't impose them on other people. All right, so let me give you an example. I knew a pastor who believed that television was evil because of the things that are on television. Now, there are things on television that are very evil. There are other things on television that are morally neutral. There are other things on television that are God-honoring. So television in and of itself is not explicitly evil. But he did not have a television in his home at all for that reason. He specifically did not have a television. I have no problem with that. If you have that personal conviction that you don't want to have a TV in your home because of the temptation to sin, cool. Where I had the problem was when he stood in the pulpit and told his congregation, you should all not have televisions because televisions are evil and if you own a TV, you're in sin and going to hell. That is an example of taking your personal, non-scriptural conviction and trying to press it onto someone else. That is unacceptable. So that's, the, that's what Paul is laying out here in Scripture, is that the Holy Spirit is going to give you convictions, follow them, unless your convictions literally run opposite of Scripture. All right? If your convictions tell you, well, according to the Holy Spirit, I can get drunk all day long. No, the Holy Spirit did not tell you that. That's not something the Holy Spirit told you. Okay? But other than that, live by the convictions that the Holy Spirit gives you, but don't try to make other people follow your convictions. That's not okay. So with the Colossians, unlike how he did with the Romans, he takes a different approach to this issue. He points to the purpose of those things. So remember, he's talking about food and drink, festivals, new moons, Sabbath. 
he takes a different approach and he says this in verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He says that they're a shadow of things to come. He kind of expands on this, or not Paul, unless you believe Paul wrote Hebrews, but we see an expansion of this in Hebrews chapter 8. This is what it says. Now the point and what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest and one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. All right, so right there in Hebrews, they kind of also talk about the shadow idea or a copy. And so what he's trying to communicate is that those things are not the good things of God. They are a shadow. So think about a shadow. When light shines onto something, it casts a shadow. And that shadow is a representation of the actual thing. But it's not the actual thing. Your shadow is not you. All right. Even in Peter Pan, where his shadow is alive, it's still not Peter Pan, right? It's still something distinct. And in fact, a shadow is not always a true representation of the actual thing. Depending on the angle of the sun, my shadow might appear to be 20 feet tall. I'm tall, but I'm not that tall. So depending on the angle of the light, a shadow can be a faulty representation of the actual thing. In Galatians 3, 4, Paul says this, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. That word guardian right there is a word that is used for a household servant that has a very specific job. They are in charge of making sure that the children in the household make it to their school lessons. They are a guardian over the children who brings them to their lessons. All right, so... The law was our guardian, our our tutor, our school bus, as it were, that brings us to Christ in order that we might be justified by faith. That's Paul's ultimate point. The reason why they don't have to submit to all of those festivals and Sabbaths and rules about food and drink is because all of those things were intended for one purpose, to point us to Jesus Christ. All of those things were instilled by God in the Old Testament to show us our important, the importance of faith in Jesus Christ. Because we can't do it ourselves. We can't connect with God ourselves. Christ is the substance. This is a callback as well to the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 where Paul talked about the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to the saints right? That's earlier in Colossians. That's another reference. All of those things that we see in the Old Testament, the Jewish regulations and all those things, that was the mystery. Jesus is the revelation of that mystery. Those were the shadow. Christ is the substance. 
And so he's telling them, don't worry about those things. Don't let them pass judgment on you. Don't worry about that because you have the substance now. You don't have the shadow. You're not clinging to the shadow. Christ is the payoff. He is the actual thing that casts the shadows. Don't seek the shadows. Seek Christ. That's what Paul is trying to communicate to the Colossians. Don't seek the shadows. Seek Christ. The second thing that he mentions is kind of a warning. He tells them to let no one disqualify them. That's verse 18. Let no one disqualify you. This carries the connotation of being deceived. Being deceived and being led astray from the true Christ. 1 Corinthians 9.24 says this. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. So Paul wants to communicate in 1 Corinthians that just because you think you are pursuing Christ doesn't mean you are pursuing Christ. Run the race in such a way that you obtain the prize. That's the same concept here. Just because these people are telling you we have special knowledge and we're bringing in these special things, if you pursue these things, you will be disqualified. What is it that would disqualify them? This particular false teaching has all the hallmarks of Gnosticism. It has something called asceticism. In case you don't know what that word means, I had to look it up myself when I first started studying this book. Asceticism has to do with severe self-discipline. It has to do with denying any kind of physical pleasure because the Gnostics believed that any kind of physical pleasure in the physical realm was evil and sinful. So there's no pleasure in the spiritual realm. And so asceticism would teach, have you ever seen like in a movie or anything like that where you have the people who would hit themselves with reeds and, and cut themselves for different reasons? That's asceticism. If they have a thought that they don't like, cut yourself. Try to, try to enforce this kind of rigid self-discipline through pain and denial and restriction. That's what asceticism is. He also talks about angel worship. Going on in detail about visions. These are all things, this, this kind of special knowledge kind of stuff. Like, I've had a vision. Let me tell you what the Lord has revealed to me. If anybody ever tells you they had a vision... Call the doctor. Don't worry about the Holy Spirit. Call the doctor. Because the Holy Spirit did not give them that. These things are not biblical. And in some cases, they are specifically spoken against. They're not biblical. And so when these people are trying to insist on worshiping angels and this rigid self-discipline and having these visions, they are, in, they are inserting things into following Christ that are not of Christ. And so if you pursue those things, that's disqualifying. You see what I'm saying there? That's why Paul is trying to communicate to them. Let no one disqualify you by telling you you have to do these things and you go, oh, well, okay, that makes sense. Because he says the true outcome of these patterns is that you, come, that you become puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. Puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. Now, sensuous can carry kind of a an illicit connotation, right? Like, oh, that's sensuous. But that's not what Paul is driving at here. Sensuous at its root has to do with the senses as opposed to the intellect. And that is specifically mentioned in the definition. So it elevates your experience over what you know. Does that make sense? 
So when Paul's talking about their sensuous mind, he is saying that they are being experiential rather than biblical. Does that sound familiar? There's a lot of so-called Christian movements that are really focused on the experience. They're really focused on the experience. They want you to have an emotional reaction. Pastor Mitch talked a little bit about that this morning. They want you to have an emotional reaction. And so they dim the lights real low and they put on the fog machine and the keyboard player is playing just the soft chords and they're telling you things like, just let your heart flow freely to the Lord and all this weird nonsense. That's all experiential. That's a sensuous mind. That's being puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. Christianity is not based on experiences. It's not. Christianity is based on the Bible. It's based on Jesus Christ. Not your experience. And listen, you may have sat on your bed one day and read the Bible and you just wept for four hours. And that's awesome. I'm really excited for you. That's cool. But that has no bearing on my walk as a believer. None whatsoever. The Bible has bearing on my walk as a believer. Christianity is not experiential. It's biblical. And Paul says that these experiences serve to make you prideful. And that's the goal. One of the things that I experienced uh, when I was in high school, uh, some friends of mine uh, got involved in this group started by a church that was a a specific hangout for teenagers. And it was every Friday night, and it was called 180. And it started off pretty normal. We would go, and they had a whole, like half of the building was set up with air hockey and basketball courts and the whole deal. And then the other half was a worship center. And at first, it was pretty normal. They had a band, and they played some songs, and then they had a preacher who got up and preached. And then it started getting weird. They were all up there jabbering in tongues, and they were all, you know, they were falling out on the stage. They were doing all these things, and it kind of became this competition between the people out in the, in the crowd. Well, what do you mean you've only spoken in tongues once? I've done it five times. And it really did serve as a source of pride because clearly I'm more spiritual than you. I'm five times more spiritual than you because I've spoken in tongues five times. I quit going because one of them made the mistake of asking me how many times I had spoken in tongues. And I responded by saying, it was actually one of the leaders that asked me that. And I was like 16, 17 years old. And if you think I got a smart mouth now, whew. Um, and anyway, so he says to me, he says, he says, Corey, Corey, how many times have you spoken in tongues? I was like, I don't, I don't have time to speak in tongues. I'm too busy reading my Bible. He didn't like that answer very much. But either way, it was all about the experience. And like Paul said, it was about pride. It was making them prideful. And Paul con- he contrasts that withholding fast to the head. He says, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head. In chapter one of Colossians, Paul says that Christ is the head of the body. This is a direct callback. He is saying, hold fast to Christ. But there's also an element of wordplay here. 
You ever heard the expression that somebody lost their head? That expression's been around a long time. Because that's kind of what Paul is driving at here. He's like, listen, they're so worried about all this other stuff, they lost their head. They lost their head. It's kind of a double meaning there. Paul's really good at those. And that's what he wants you to understand. He's like, listen, don't get yourself so focused on these experiences, building up your own spirituality, that you don't hold fast to the head. We must ground our experiences in what the scriptures tell us. We have to. We have to ground our experiences in what the scripture tells us. So if you come to me and say, Pastor Corey, I was laying in my bed and I opened my eyes and on the ceiling I saw a vision of a flaming angel riding a unicorn. No, you didn't. You didn't see that. I mean, maybe you did, but it wasn't the Holy Spirit that showed it to you. That's not how, that's not how the Bible describes God speaking to us. You have to ground your experiences in scripture. That's what you have to do. Human beings have a tendency to value personal experiences over all else. We really like that emotional connection, but we cannot make that the arbiter of truth. And you might say to me, I would never do that. And I've known plenty of people that would say to me, I would never do that. But do you know how many people I know that I would have said they are so solidly in Scripture, so solidly in the Bible, that they would never, ever, drift off of what scripture says and then one of their grandkids comes out as gay and all of a sudden oh well you know it's okay to be gay you can be gay and be a christian there's nothing wrong with that personal experience trumped biblical knowledge and that happens so often because like i said we as humans like that emotional connection it makes our brains hum a little bit. But we can't do that. We There's a reason why Paul uses that phrase, hold fast to the head, because it's an active thing that you have to do. It's not passive. You have to hold fast to the head. And he says, this is where growth comes from. It comes from holding fast to the head. He says, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. That's great imagery, right? Nourished and knit together, being worked on by something outside of ourselves. Brothers and sisters, one of the greatest instances of good news in the Christian faith is that you are not solely responsible for your sanctification and growth. You ever thought about that? You are not responsible for making yourself more like Christ. God is doing that. He is actively nourishing and knitting you together to Christ, being built up in him. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. And so the first thing that Paul wants them to do is he wants them to pursue godly growth. The second thing he wants them to do is he wants them to know what is valuable. He moves from those things into helping us to see what's really valuable in our pursuit of Christ. And so he says, if with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, this is verse 20, why as if you were still alive uh, in the world do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. 
So the line of thinking that Paul uses is that we have died to the world and specifically to the elemental spirits, the rulers and authorities, the demons who are propagating these false teachings that are invading the church. This is about spiritual warfare. You have died to the world and the elemental spirits therein. So because of that, it doesn't make sense for us to then submit to the same things that we were submitted to before because Christ has set us free from those. Apart from Christ, we don't have the choice. We are enslaved to that. But in Christ, you've been set free. Why would you submit yourselves again to the yoke of slavery, as Paul says in Galatians? Why would you do that? Because these regulations, apart from Christ, were used as a way of earning salvation. And that's what's being taught again in this instance. If you want to really be a Christian, you have to do these things. And that's not biblical. You cannot earn your salvation. They're essentially saying Christ is not enough. He is not enough. You have to do this stuff and not do this other stuff, and then you're going to be saved. That's what Paul was talking about in Galatians, where he called them fools. To be dead to the elemental spirits and alive to Christ is to know that we cannot earn salvation by any work whatsoever. In Isaiah chapter 29, Isaiah talks about, he quotes God and God says that this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They honor me with their lips. They say the right things, but their hearts are far from me. Paul talks in Romans about how you might be circumcised in the flesh. You might be descended from Israel, but unless you have a circumcised heart, then you are not in Christ. You are not truly a part of the body. It's not just about these outward things. It's about inward change. Now, Maybe they would say, maybe the false teachers would say, no, 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 we're not saying you have to do these things to be saved. Maybe they would say, you have to do these things to be holy. You have to be holy. That's what we're talking about. We're just talking about holiness and righteousness. But Paul shuts that down too. Because what does he say? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. Paul says, listen, I'll grant you, these things sound pretty wise. They have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But, what does he close with? They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You can do these things all you want. It will not kill sin in you. Why? Because sin is in you already. Sin is not something that you do Sin is a part of who we are. And in Christ, we still have to make war against our flesh every moment of every day. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, the things that I want to do are the things that I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do are the things that I do. So if anybody would have an idea of what is of value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, it would be Paul. And Paul literally says these things have zero value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Outward restrictions do not make you holy in any way. But do you know what does? Holding fast to the head. Holding fast to the head is what makes you holy. Outwardly restricting yourself may be one thing. Because think about it like this. 
let's say maybe you have a problem with lust. And so you go to the ultimate extreme and you gouge out your eyes so you will never look at someone lustfully. But you might still think lustful thoughts. It's of no value. You might, you might struggle with hating someone, with hating other people. So you isolate yourself out in the wilderness. But every once in a while, that thought of that next door neighbor is going to rise to the top of your brain. You're going to go, oh, I hate that guy. You're in sin. Outward restrictions do not make you holy, but holding fast to the head does. So what does that look like? You base your life on the scriptures, not on your experiences. Your experiences are not what you base your life on. You base your life strictly on the scriptures. The next thing is that you have to seek to be like Christ, not simply to restrict yourself from sin. There is a big difference between those two things. You can seek to restrict yourself from sin and still not be like Christ, and you have fallen short. Seek to be like Christ. Read his word, study the Bible, and try to be like him. Don't just try to stop sinning. Try to be like Jesus. And the last thing that I will say is this. Let nothing outweigh the worth of Jesus to you. Not even so-called good traditions. The worth of Christ surpasses all things. All things in light of his value look like garbage. Look like literal. Paul literally says this that I would count all things as dung in light of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Do you think about things like that? Is that how you think about your family? Is that how you think about your preferences? Is that how you think about your politics? Christ is more valuable than all of that. And I have known people who claim to be Christians and then one day they see something in the Bible that they don't like and they're like, okay, well, I guess I'm just not going to be a Christian anymore because I prefer this to this. I like this better than I like Jesus. And that's ultimately what happens. So if you want to hold fast to the head, base your life on the scriptures, not on experiences. Seek to be like Christ, not simply to restrict yourself from sin and let nothing outweigh the worth of Jesus to you. Nothing, nothing at all should be more valuable to us than Jesus Christ. That's how you hold fast to the head. That's how you set aside the things of the world and pursue him fully. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word made flesh, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that he would be more valuable to us than anything else. I pray, Lord, that we would hold fast to the head. It is so easy for us to fall into the trap of self-made religion. It's so easy for us to fall into the trap of trying to earn your good favor. But we cannot do that, Father. We cannot earn your favor because you have already showed it to us in Christ. And Father, because we are in Christ, we know that if there were anything better for us, we would have it. 
because you give us good things. And you love us with a depth of love that we could never, ever comprehend. Help us, Father, to hold fast to the head all the days of our lives. In Christ's name, amen.